my name is Devin Johnson. I am on the legal business team at Microsoft. I produce content for the Business of Law podcast. Today, we have Jason Barnwell, Assistant General Counsel of Legal Business Operations and Strategy at Microsoft, along with Danielle Johnson-Holmes, Associate General Counsel of Patents at Microsoft. Today, we, we discussed her work at Microsoft, how she partners with outside counsel, and building a career by defining success for herself. All right, today I am sitting down and talking with Danielle Johnson-Holmes, Associate General Counsel of Patents at Microsoft. Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat today. Thanks, Jason, for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. I am too. Uh, so I will uh, rat you out on a couple things uh, before we get going. So when I uh, took over the, the law firm engagement strategy gig a couple years ago, you were unbelievably helpful. So it turns out that uh, over the last uh, many years, you've quietly been building a best practices uh, approach to working with outside counsel. And so I don't know if you realized it, but I would often go to you and I would, you know, float some ideas past and you're like, oh yeah, you know, here's here are my thoughts on this, here's what we've done. And I cannot stress how supportive you were. And so much of what we do is, is a, just a straight ripoff of what the patent uh, team has been doing for a long time. So I am grateful for the investment that you've made. And I, I think people may not know it, but Microsoft has benefited not just from your direct work making patents, this patents machine hum, but also we've, we started infusing that into other parts of the practice. Well, thank you. I was happy to help. I mean, I've had a lot of help. I can't take all the credit for the work that we've done with outside counsel. But, you know, the partnership with outside counsel is such an important key to our success. We rely on them. You know, we couldn't do our jobs without them. So I think any investment that you make in building that relationship and turning it into a partnership where both of you are going to be successful, you know, pays off a lot. And I think, you know, at times we have been guilty, I have been guilty, you know, others have been guilty, you know, of really just treating outside counsel as just, you know, another vendor. I'm going to throw something over the wall and expect it to come back and that generally is not a successful model investing in that partnership really pays off I and I have seen that up close and personal you really do treat them as partners and it's not just a word it is real investment you know whether it's teaching them more about your business you know giving them feedback which sometimes they like sometimes they like less like you you're very real about that and it, it shows so let's let's mix things up a little bit so what what is your business like what is your role look like what do you do so I have been in the patent group for 21 years at Microsoft so I have spent my entire career here uh, on the same team but that team has changed dramatically over the years in terms of strategy and the way that we do our work and and things like that for the last um, for the last several years, I have run what we call our patent portfolio development team, which is a group of you know around 35 attorneys and 15 paralegals who are responsible for working with all the engineers at Microsoft to harvest ideas from them and decide what we're going to patent. We're pretty selective on what we patent. We only file patents on about half the ideas that we get from our engineers. So there's a pretty rigorous selection process. Uh, we also maintain our patent portfolio uh, worldwide. You know, we have tens of thousands of patents that are in various stages of being filed and granted around the world. So we, and that's where our partnership with outside counsel 
counsel comes in in terms of drafting and prosecuting those patents worldwide. And then we work very closely with our patent engineering and licensing team, which is run by my colleague, Mickey Minhas, uh, to get value from our patent portfolio. And in the last couple years, that has really shifted from a monetization strategy to a business value uh, strategy, trading our patents for other things that are important for our business. Mm-hmm. So you are, and I, this may be overly reductive, but you are responsible for what is effectively a scale play for harvesting really great ideas from the innovations that are originated by our engineers and really reducing those into things that we can file on and then managing them through the life cycle. Exactly. And it is, you're right, it's a scale play. It's a it's a high volume practice, which means, I mean, we file about 15 to 1700 new applications a year. We file about 90% of those patents in countries outside of the U.S. Um, for those of people who know patents in the United States, we respond to about 10,000 office actions a year. So it is a very high volume practice, which is why we rely on such a strong partnership with outside counsel to help us do that work. Because given that scale, we're a relatively, relatively small team. Um, we're also supported by a very strong um, operations group run by my colleague, Melanie Carmesino, who's excellent at what she does and you know really helps us with workflows and processes and being efficient. I will absolutely co-sign <laughs> Melanie. So Melanie is one of my colleagues as well. I regard her as a colleague and, and we, we, we borrow a lot of pages from her playbook mm-hmm. too. So when you think about, so I, let me back up a second. So you are really in charge of thinking about how the over the overall system works, but also aligning the motions with the strategy, right? So if we are, you know, every so often we kind of review, like, what are we going to do with IP? And so it, it sounds like you're also responsible for making sure that the things we're focusing on, whether it's the topic areas, the geographies, what have you, they're aligned with the larger strategic play. Is that the- That is correct, yes. Okay. So one thing that I have been very intrigued by is the, the, the care that you put into actually making the machine work really, really well. And I'm curious what, the, what brought you to that. So let, let me give a specific example. Uh, before most of the other parts of the department started uh, doing this, you started collecting feedback on your outside counsel partners in a very measured and methodical way. And then you turn that into action. It wasn't just uh, the information goes into a dark hole and nobody ever does anything with it. You actually started turning it into, oh, here's how you could you know, do a better job. I'm, and then you created accountability mechanisms. And I'm curious, what, what triggered that? What brought you to that? You know, it was really a business necessity, I would say. When we really shifted our patent strategy from a quality of patents instead of just a quantity of patents, um, you know, we had to really put a lot more rigor into what we were doing. And we have limited resources. So, you know, the business is asking you to get value out of this patent portfolio, which means you have to get quality patents. You have a limited number of resources, which means you need to get efficient and you, you need to make sure that everybody is working with you 
is aligned with that strategy on quality and is really caring about what they're doing. Uh, so we realized that in our outside counsel community, I would say we had some complacency or some people who just were not adjusting to the strategic change either as quickly um, or as effectively as you know we were really asking them to. And you know we were holding them to the same standards that we were holding ourselves to because we also had to go through a pretty dramatic uh, strategic change, change in roles and responsibilities, change in, well, did the work. So kind of like anything else you do, it was a business necessity uh, that we, why we did it and why we made that shift. I'm curious what the hard, what was the hardest thing in implementing a feedback kind of system? Like what, was it cultural? Was it technological? Like what, what was it was probably cultural. Yeah. It's hard because, you know, Outside counsel are people, we're people, we have relationships with them. And some of those relationships went back, you know, 10 or 15 years. And it's hard to say to someone who you've worked with for a decade and you know that they're good people, you know, you're really not cutting it. And, you know, you really need to make this change for us. So I think it was more around the culture and managing the personal relationships than it was around, you know, technology. Mm -hmm. So I've observed that you're quite good at giving people direct feedback in a kind and gentle way with the, <laughs> with the you know, the, the real ethos of, I want you to be successful. And I'm curious if you had to help any of your colleagues uh, who were less practiced in that on, on your team, find ways to keep engaging in a constructive way, but also so that the, the, your outside counsel is like perceiving it as investment, not just being, I, I don't want to say attacked, but yeah. you know. Well, it's nice of you to say that. Um, it's something that, you know, when I'm self-critical, I can look back and say there are things that I probably could have done better uh, in that area. I always tried. I always tried to be to be, you know, direct and professional um, and also make it as an investment um, in the relationship. But I do think it's something that people struggle with. It's a hard conversation to have. Uh, so I tried to model like, okay, I will be involved. I will have the hardest conversations myself. And then, you know, tried to model it. And, you know, a lot of people on the team really uh, stepped up. We had an outside council management committee and the folks on that team, you know, really were bought into what we were doing and did, you know, excellent work in having those hard conversations and managing those relationships. So again, it's not something that I would take credit for. Well, I, okay, fair <laughs> enough. So tell us a little bit more about this outside council uh, management committee. What do they do? What, 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 how did you constitute it? What do they do? What, what purpose do they serve? So they were really, we, um, at one time we were managing almost 70 US law firms, which was too many. We now we now have that number down to about 40. So you can see there were a lot of hard conversations and that group of 40 actually includes a lot of new firms as well. Um, so what the outside um, council management committee were attorneys and a paralegal on my team who were each assigned you know, a group of those firms along with one of my attorney managers. So we set up relationship managers, which was an attorney manager as well as a member of the outside council committee who really focused on, you know, 
eight or ten firms each really built relationships, set expectation, collected and provided uh, feedback. The other thing that we really did, and I, I know this is right up your alley, is we actually took a data-driven approach to this. Um, you and I have had lots of conversations about data, so I'll, I'll share with some, some other folks. Data isn't perfect. Data does not give you the answer, but data allows you to ask the right questions and see the outliers and spot where you might have you know, issues in your organization. So we started thinking about you know, how can we make more data-driven decisions, and we were transparent with this. We told outside counsel, this is what we're gonna start measuring it. We shared the data with them. We let them know when they were outliers on some of the things we were measuring. And I think that combined with more of the you know, subjective anecdotal feedback, you know, what attorneys and paralegals are saying about what it's like to work with those firms, marrying those two things together, I think was really important and really key to the success. And you know, we just continued down that path of not just how do we measure outside counsel, but how do we use data to measure what we're doing and you know, see those outliers and see those um, problem areas. And I think that's important as you shift to a more data-driven model. The data is going to be messy. The data is not going to be 100% accurate, and you can't let that stop you from using it. It doesn't mean it's not valuable. It just means you have to kind of recognize that you know messiness or inaccuracies that you have, but still use it for you know the value uh, that it has. Uh, so, I I think that I agree. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm preaching on this one. Um, so. I do think that there's a lot of us who we basically get stalled because we, we get paralyzed by like, is do I have enough data? Is it good enough? And so we don't even, we don't frame it in the way that you do, which is it's a place to start asking better questions. And that is absolutely, I, I just agree with that wholeheartedly. The other thing I have observed that you do, uh, going back to where you were saying, you need to really mesh the, the qualitative with the quantitative is, um, you, you told me a story once that has always stuck with me where there was one of your partner firms, and we were, we're not going to name any names, but um, they were not satisfying you. You were not happy with them. And the data was telling you this, or the data were telling you this, and so you, you did something that is exactly the right thing to do. You actually went to them and you went on site. So you went to their offices, and the story you told me was that when you were there, you saw a culture that reflected what you were seeing here, that it was closed doors, it was people who you know, were not overly <laughs> engaged with their work, that it was a very hierarchical kind of feeling and sense, and that that was manifesting in the work that they were doing for you. And so I really took that to heart that you, you gave me this insight, which is when you're seeing that outlier, when you're seeing something that is not within your control envelope and you're not happy with it, try to get on the ground and see the, what's happening there and meet the people. And that was such a deep insight that you offered and I've, I've held, held it close. Yeah, thank you. And I, I mean, that's other, you know, when you think about managing outside counsel, 
I think it is super valuable to visit their offices. Um, in some ways, I wish I would have done that more. I did it a little bit. I probably could have d- could have done it more because that way you're not just seeing the relationship partners. You're meeting, you know, the entire firm, including, you know, the paralegals and the secretaries and the young associates. And you get a sense of what their culture is by, you know, being in their space rather than having, you know, two, three, four attorneys here who, you know, let's be honest, are, you know, on their best behavior or, you know, making trying to put their best foot forward, make the right impression. So I found it very valuable and very insightful to visit different offices um, of firms. So that's another observation that you gave me, which is it is a team that delivers your your counsel. Yes. And you are you have been, I would say, uh, a, a vocal champion for diversity, but I suspect it is in large part because, yes, it, it is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for society. But you have a very holistic view on where quality and value come from. And when you see a real team that has lots of perspectives, they, they tend to deliver better work. And what's really interesting is I've seen you better than most hold people truly accountable for that. And I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about kind of your journey on like how you came to how you think about making diversity a real thing. Um, well, that's a big question. Um, you know, I think I've I'm, I've always cared about diversity uh, in the profession. Um, you know, I have a story similar to many others my age when I started at my law firm. Let's get the- into the story. <laughs> how, did, how did you get to Microsoft? What, give us the story. So I, I came out of law school and worked at an, an IP boutique in Chicago. Good firm. I had a good experience there. Um, I was the only woman in the, you know, kind of electrical computer science area of the firm, which was not unusual back then. We had some other women who were good mentors and peer friends to me, but they were generally in the the biotech side of the industry. I came to Microsoft through a cold call from a headhunter, which I don't think that happens anymore. But, you know, in the old days, you actually used to get telephone calls from headhunters. And I... Don't know why, but I picked up my phone that day and they said, you know, hey, there's this little software company out in Seattle that's looking for patent attorneys. And I just was like, why not? What the heck? <laughs> I'll throw my resume together and, and see what happens. And, you know, about two months later, I found myself on a plane to Seattle going, what am I doing? Um, but I really fell in love with this place. Like the people I met here, like just instantly connected with me. And even though I wasn't really looking and I'd kind of done this on a whim, uh, you know, I felt like this was the right move for me and I've never regretted um, that move. And one of the things that attracted me to Microsoft right away was the diversity of the team. At that time, you know, a third of the patent attorneys were women at Microsoft. That shocked me. I'd never seen that in, in my career. And it was at Microsoft where I first heard people talking about diversity in the legal profession where, like I said, in when I started in the law, it was not as discussed as, as it is today. So that was something that instantly attracted me to, to Microsoft. And I give you know a lot of folks at Microsoft credit for kind of getting me involved in you know this big topic of diversity and inclusion. I've learned a lot from you know a lot of people here. So I think I've always been an advocate um, 
for it and also have branched out. I mean, I started, and I think a lot of people who start in DNI, you know, I was focused on issues of women because that's what I could relate to. But then, you know, later in my career, you know, I met folks like Stuart Pixley and I worked for several years starting our kind of people with disabilities. And that's what I would challenge people to do in DNI is get outside of your minority group and learn about another one because, you know, that was an incredible experience for me where I was out of my comfort zone. I didn't know what I was doing. I fumbled a few times, but at the end of the day, I met great people who were willing to, you know, willing to teach me. And I think that really broadened my perspective, my perspective and made me even more passionate about all areas of diversity inclusion, not just, uh, not just around women. Uh, so I will also challenge people in w- who happen to be in a majority group. Also get in there and, yes. and have some fun. It's it's a good time. It is a good time. Um, I've always said that, you know, working in DNI, that's where you really meet the cream of the crop of the profession. Um, you know, these are really the people of who you want to spend your time with, um, who you're really inspired by. And I will also tell you, um, it's good for your career. Um, early on in my career, the first time when I was a young lawyer at Microsoft, the first time I ever presented to the SLT was on a diversity issue. And it was years later before I ever presented to them on a substantive legal issue. But they knew who I was. I had relationships with them through the work that I had done, that some of the early work I had done on um, DNI. So um, it's not bad for your career. I think that's an observation that is often lost, that if you only build relationships and networks that are pretty much squarely aligned with your day job, you will only get more access as basically more work happens. But if you want to work in parallel and if effectively expand your footprint faster, finding other opportunities to build networks within your organization and outside of your organization, they create more surface area for you. People can see your skills and capabilities before it might be normally, you know, the progression through the ladder of the substantive. I totally agree with that. And, you know, if if any of the the newer or younger lawyers on my team are listening to this, they'll recognize this conversation because it is advice I always give people when when they join Microsoft, is you have to find some way to build your network just outside of the people that you're going to interact with on your day-to-day job. And there's so many ways to do that. Um, that's what's incredible about uh, Microsoft. Everything from, you know, DNI, pro bono, things like that. But also like, hey, if you're an avid cyclist, go join the cyclists at Microsoft group. Like there is a interest group for anything that you're interested in here. And, you know, meeting those people, I mean, meeting people in other parts of the company who work in, you know, sales and marketing and product engineering, you just, you know, you learn so much from them. And, you know, there's a chance you might want to tap into their business expertise at some point. So the reason you entered my consciousness was because you were the the VPAL for the Uh, Give Campaign campaign. several years ago. 
And, uh, you know, so I, at that point, I didn't have much opportunity. I was still uh, practicing uh, in what is now Cloud and AI platform. And so, you know, I would work with like Kevin Sullivan and uh, Nicholas and those folks, but I really didn't have much engagement with you because I, I would work with the folks on your team. And then one day I go to uh, the Give kickoff and you get up there and you give this very passionate speech. And I'm like, who is this person? Like, I, and so at that point, I started stalking you like, okay, like who's this Danielle person? Well, I, I need to know more about that. And so I, I, I think that your your path through this place and your success, I'm, I'm positive it is because there were times where somebody either asked you like, hey, you want to do this thing? And you're like, mm, there's a gap and I'm just going to go do that even though it's not my day job. And I think, I suspect that is where a lot of your success has come from. I, I have done a lot of that. And, you know, this is where, again, I will credit the culture of this place. And I've always had very supportive managers and peers and the like who have, you know, um, given me room to do that. And yeah, give, giving and the philanthropy of Microsoft is another thing that I'm very passionate about. I always say October is my favorite month at Microsoft because that's when we focus on giving and, you know, my time like leading the giving campaign um, for CELA, LCA back then, you know, was one of the highlights um, for me. It is one of the uh, sneaky, awesome things about this place. It work. is. So I, I think up to $15,000 a year, we are matched dollar for dollar uh, for what we contribute to qualifying organizations. And it's one of those like sneaky, awesome benefits that you don't even realize that you get on the inside. It is, as well as the volunteer hours. And I know you do a lot of community service work outside of Microsoft. And, you know, the fact that every community service hour, um, you know, $25, $25 goes to that organization. The organizations realize that. That, and they kind of start like, hey, <laughs> will you do more for us? But it's that is it's a fantastic benefit. It's a good deal for everyone. So I, I will. I, I know the answer to this, but uh, have you had uh, uh, an overly linear uh, path uh, through your your career? Uh, have you have you been uh, a, a full time employee uh, throughout the entire vector? Of- um, I haven't. I mean, in some ways you could say I've had a linear path because as I told you, I've been in the same group um, the whole time. But one of the defining um, things that I did in my career, and I would say this was probably, you know, the scariest moment of my career, the biggest risk that I took is I actually um, worked part time and asked to go part time. Um, this was when this was in like the mid 2000s. I had been here like eight years. I was in kind of a mid level management position. I was managing a team, I think, of about 12 or 15 people at that time. And it was really when I came back from maternity leave with my second child. I remember having this thought that I could do it. I was doing it, but I just wasn't happy. Um, And I felt like I don't know that this is what I want to do. This is not what I want my career. This is not what what I want my family life to be. So, you know, after reflection, I thought, you know, working part time was the best option. And I had no idea how that was going to be received here because nobody else was doing it. So it was really, I did not have a precedent to follow. And I remember delaying that conversation for several months because I didn't know what I was going to do if, you know, I was told, no, you can't do that. I didn't have a plan B and I was struggling with the plan B because I really didn't want to leave. But I ultimately came to the conclusion, like, it's okay not to have a plan B. 
like let's let just like get up the courage and ask the question and see what happens. So, you know, I asked the question and I, you know, had a plan of this is how I think it would work and and that type of thing. So I went into the conversation, I think, prepared. Um, and, you know, thinking this was going to be like this big, hard, scary conversation. And, you know, I was hugely supported um, by, you know, my manager, my skip level manager, even Brad at the time was like, yes, we should figure out a way to do that. And I actually worked um, part time between 50 percent and 75 percent time for about seven years. So a very long time. Um, and then, you know, when I made the decision to come back um, uh, full time, you know, shortly after that is when I was um, promoted to partner. So, you know, it worked out for me. Um, I'm glad, like looking back, I'm glad I took that risk. Um, it was good for me. It was good for my family. Um, it was good um, all the way around. And again, another reason that I'm very grateful for Microsoft and the leaders here for, you know, being flexible enough to make that work for me. And it clearly did not harm your prospects for future capacity to contribute to the organization. No, it, it, it didn't, obviously. Um, I mean, at the time that I made that decision, I remember thinking to myself, like, this is it. Like, I am I am stepping off the ladder. I'm never getting another promotion. And I was, I was actually okay with that when I made the decision. So it's not something that I planned, like, oh, yes, in eight years, I'm going to come back full time and then I'll go. I more just kind of was like, okay, am I doing interesting? Interesting work. Am I working with people that I like? Do I feel, you know, challenged and energized from from being here? And if the answer to that question was yes, I was always happy. Um, you know, kind of regardless of where I was, you know, in the org chart or what my title was. So you just preempted my next question, <laughs> which was, you know, so so much of uh, especially larger organizations, there's a lot of like titles, levels. There's there's and it literally looks like a ladder, mm -hmm. and it feels like so much of uh, and I think this is changing at Microsoft, but historically, a lot of the, the incentive structure was climb the ladder, climb the ladder. And I think we're actually changing now to more grow your capabilities, think about what your experience should be with less of a, a verticality and more of a what, what are the things that would be satisfying for you? And so I find it interesting that you were so far ahead of where I think we are going because it is this challenge of you have to give people something else to, to, be, to find meaning and fulfillment in the work if you're not going to give them the ladder over there. Yeah. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about this and you were so far ahead. I, I'm, I'm curious if you, how did, like, is this just how you're wired? Was this modeled for you? Where did it come from? You know, I, I think it's a little bit about how I am wired and I do it. The other advice I always give people is define your own success because I think it's not only true at Microsoft, I think, you know, most corporations, most law firms, success is actually very narrowly defined, which means if you are not climbing the ladder as high as you can, as fast as you can, you're not successful. And by that definition, there's only one successful person at Microsoft, right? And that's our CEO. And I don't believe that. I think there's, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of successful people at Microsoft. And I think I shared this story with you in private earlier, but you know, one of the realizations I had, I think I was at a point in my career where like, you know, one of my peers had gotten promoted and I thought I deserved it more than him. So I was kind of at, I was kind of down on myself or a little down on this place. And then, you know, I, I went home to like an extended family thing for like Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. And, you know, my uncles were all like, 
this is my niece. She's this hotshot attorney at Microsoft. Like, we're so proud of her. And, and I remember thinking like, wow, like, you know, in this little internal bubble that I live, I'm considering myself like not successful yet. You know, here's my uncles like, you know, trotting me out and wanting me to meet all their friends because, you know, they thought I was hugely successful. And I did have this conscious realization, like I need to start looking at things through my uncle's eyes um, because they have a better, they have a better perspective. So I do think that helped me not get so caught up in, you know, the, the politics and what other people are doing in their careers and really just focusing on, like I said, am I doing interesting work? Do I feel like it's valuable? You know, am I energized by the people that I'm working with? And if I could, like I said, if I could answer those questions, yes, I've been happy. And it's the reason why I never left Microsoft because I could always answer those questions in the positive. So is that also your recipe for resilience? Because you've been here a long time and, and you know, many people who are here for a long time, they get a little bit jaded and they, they, they you know, they're less energized. And, you know, when I see you, you know, on any given day, like you are still showing up with great energy and just a fantastic attitude and you're really bringing people along. Is, is that your secret? I think it is. Um, you know, like I said, focusing on, you know, those things rather than the politics or the bureaucracy or, you know, the little things. If you let the little things that you perceive as being, you know, unfair or, you know, things that are out of your control that happen, I mean, you can let that sink you really easily. And, you know, I've definitely had moments in 21 years here. I've had moments when I've been very frustrated, <laughs> you know, when I've been unhappy, but they've always been for short periods of time. Um, like, obviously, if you're feeling that way for a very long period of time, you know, you need to look at making a move. But, you know, if you're having a bad couple weeks or even a bad couple months, like, I think sometimes people get either too impatient and don't ride it out, um, or they just get so, you know, into, they get so hung up on that in a downward spiral. I actually had a conversation with someone, um, you know, a couple months ago where they brought up something that happened like five years ago and they were still upset about it. And I remember, and they're like, well, don't you remember? And I'm like, oh, now that you bring it up, yes, I do remember. And I do remember being kind of annoyed about it at the time, but I'm not still upset about it. Like five years later, I haven't even thought about it. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's not a, that's not probably a healthy way to be. And it probably is impacting how you're showing up for work um, every day. And, you know, it probably is starting to hurt your advancement if you're kind of in that, you know, kind of negative space. Um, when you look at people who, you know, get rewarded here, who get promoted, they're generally people with positive attitudes, not negative attitudes. So. Wow, that's a long time to hold on to. <laughs> so the, I think the observation you're making is especially valuable for people who are earlier in career because after you've been at a place for a long enough period of time, you do realize like there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. But if you're only a year, a couple of years, even five years in, and it feels like you know, if there's several months of, of unhappiness, it might be easy to think that this is just the trend. And so I think you're perhaps commending people, especially who are earlier in their career, to 
try to understand, like, is this a today thing? Is this a few weeks thing? Is it a few months thing? Or is it a few years thing? Mm -hmm. And if the time scale is one of those smaller increments, maybe give yourself a little optionality to see that through, get to the other side of it and evaluate, which isn't, you know, look, Having plan Bs are good, but you know, having a little bit of patience, especially with some of these larger places where things often change and you can't always see the rate of it unless you give it a little bit of time. Exactly. Yeah. Good advice. Well, I, I think I'm just <laughs> reflecting back. Be patient and you know, don't sweat all of the small stuff. I, so I guess how... <laughs> How do you figure, like, do you have any wisdom to offer on what is small stuff and what is what is not small stuff? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. That's a, that's a hard question to um, answer. Um, I think some of it is, you know, what can you control and what can you not control? And also understanding, like, what can your manager control or even your skip level manager control? Um, because if you focus a lot of your energy on being upset about, you know what I mean, some issue that is not only out of your control, but it's out of your manager's or your skip level manager's control, that's one of those that I would say, you know, work on letting it go. Um, because you're going to, you can just spin and spin and spin on a hamster wheel and bang your head against the wall, and you're probably not going to be able to, you know, affect much change. Give the feedback. I'm, I'm always an advocate of giving the feedback and, you know, giving it, trying to get that feedback to the people who can make a change. Um, but, you know, so I would say that is sometimes the smaller thing of what's in your control um, to change. Now, if there's something in your day-to-day -day job where, you know, there's a process that's frustrating you or there's, you know, a relationship that is really, you know, not going well, like those are the things that you have control over and you can try to change. You can ask your manager or your skip level manager for help in changing those things. But there are certain things that, go are, that are going to happen in large organizations that are outside of your control and some of them you just have to accept. So I'm hearing a couple of useful things there. So one is, you know, basically re be realistic about what you can impact, mm -hmm. right? Just, just have realistic expectations around that. But you also snuck in there, don't give up on the big stuff. Just don't perseverate on it, you know, give the feedback, like help make this, the systemic issues better in the ways that you can, but don't hold yourself accountable for magically flipping the switch on those. Do your part so you're not, you can't just give up on it, but like don't bang your head repeatedly when it doesn't change overnight. Exactly. I think that's a really good model, especially for larger organizations like this, which really like so many of our largest decisions it may feel like one person makes them but in many ways they're systemic right? mm -hmm. it, it, it is a consent we are an, an, an eerily consensus driven organization we have an interesting blend of kind of hierarchy and matrix we've got all kinds of uh, complexities but the net result of that is big changes are almost always systemically driven and so one of the things that I observe is that you manipulate that system pretty well in as much as you understand that changing the big stuff is often not linear, right? It is having conversations with often several people, understanding what they care about, creating some alignment, and then you can get things to move. And that's one thing that I think especially folks who are newer to these larger organizations 
they don't. I don't think they come in understanding that, mm-hmm. and I don't think that we do a good job of teaching that. But I would commend anybody who to observe how you have operated, and it actually gives a master class on how you create impact and influence at scale. And I'm curious, like, is that an intentional thing that you do, or is it just kind of an innate thing that you have? You know, I I'm going to give credit to my dad on that one because I do think that early on in my career, probably my first year as a associate, when I had just worked my first like you know 80 hour week and was like super stressed out, I called my dad up and like gave him this big long story about how hard I was working and how stressful it was and blah 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 and wanting to get like you know a little sympathy. And my dad listened to me and he said, Danielle, that's why they call it work and that's why they pay you to do it. So maybe you should quit complaining and go get something done. And I was like, wow. But, you know, that's actually really good advice Um, because I think, again, this not sweating the small stuff, everybody in their job, I actually like my job. And there are things in my job that I'm very passionate about and very interested and are very easy for me to do. But I think me, like everybody else, and I don't care how high up in the organization you are, there is some part of your job that you have to do because it's part of your job that you're probably not that excited or passionate about. Matter of fact, you might even go so far to say, I don't actually like that part of my job. And that's okay. I mean, the idea that you're going to have like this long career where you are passionate and excited about everything you are doing every minute of every day is completely unrealistic. Um, I mean, I think you need, in your job, you need something, you know, and hopefully a large percentage of it that you're passionate and interested in, but just accept the fact. There might be 10, 20, 30% of your job, at the time it might be 50% of your job that you're gonna be like, eh, you know, I wouldn't do this if I wasn't getting paid. And that's okay. It's okay to admit that, that, you know, that is why I am working and I think if you have that perspective it helps you not to sweat the small stuff so much like it's okay that there are parts of your job that you struggle with that you're not excited about that you're frustrated with that's normal and I think sometimes we put out this you know story that you know everything is always passionate and exciting and it's it's just not that's not the way the world works So there's part of your job that you're probably overpaid for and part of your job you might be underpaid. Yeah, that's a good that is that is a good way of putting it. That is a good way of putting it. But I think I'm also hearing, based on some of the other comments, there's a way to manufacture more of the stuff that really energizes you into your job if you're intentional about it. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. And I mean if you find that like I said, I've always said, you know, kind of eighty twenty is probably a good balance. Like eighty percent of your job you're like you're interested and you're passionate about and you know, maybe there's twenty percent you just kind of you have to do um you know if that was flipped if it was 2080 i would say yeah you should maybe think about making a change but don't let the fact that you know a small percentage of your job you struggle with or you're not happy about don't let that ruin your career because i think everybody's job is like that if they're really being honest so you have 
an amazing job. It clearly energizes. You have great people that you get to work with. You have meaty stuff that you're working on. You're 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 still a young person, and and yet you're you're going to be retiring from Microsoft. Yes, I am. What's that about? What's going on? You know, um, I am retiring at the end of this week. Um, I think part of it is, you know, I've spent 21 years at Microsoft. I've been 26 years as an attorney. Um, that's about half my life, and I just think it, there's a big world out there, and there's other things that I want to focus on. You know, outside of, you know, corporate law, outside of intellectual um, property law. I don't know what that is yet. I'm giving myself the luxury of time to um, figure it out. But like I said, it's a it's a big world out there and I want to make sure that I still have time to explore it. Well, I think that you're evidencing the courage of your values and your convictions that you're not just, you know, standing on the treadmill because, well, this is what I've always done. And I am inspired by the fact that you have had this amazing career, you have done these great things, but you're still really embracing that there is more that I can do, that there's probably new frontiers that I may not even know about yet, and that you're gonna go off and you're gonna discover them. And I think it is important for you to tell your story as you do that because it empowers the rest of us to go find those paths, to follow your journey, and to understand that you know, happiness may not be the conventional things that are put in front of us, that we have agency around that, and we can really manufacture that for ourselves. And I, I'm just really grateful that you do these great things, but you also share the story. You put them on display so that the others of us can follow. So thank you for that. Well, thanks, Jason. I appreciate that. And very hard to say goodbye to this place. Um, you know, I've just, I've learned so much. I've, you know, been enriched by so many wonderful um, people. And yes, I will, I will keep sharing my story. Hopefully there's another interesting chapter to tell. We will hold you accountable. Thank you, Daniel. All right, thank you. 